Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... A New History of the Vikings, from Dr. Kat Jarman, in her new book, River Kings. Dr. Kat Jarman is a bioarchaeologist and field archaeologist specialising in the Viking Age, Viking women and Rapa Nui. She uses forensic techniques like isotope analysis, radiocarbon dating and DNA analysis on human remains to untangle the experiences of past people from broader historical narratives. She is a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries and she has directed excavations at Viking Age sites in England and Ukraine. And she's currently a senior advisor on academic content for the New Museum of the Viking Age in Oslo. And today we're going to be talking about Kat's book, which is River Kings, A New History of the Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Roads. Kat, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. So this book, as I said, the subtitle here is is A New History of the Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Roads. But at the heart of this book is a tiny little bead. Yeah, so that is a carnelian bead, carnelian being a semi-precious stone, a sort of gemstone that's been used and still is used today for for jewellery, really, very beautiful. And um, this was a bead that I came across almost by accident. It happened to have been buried uh, almost 1,200 years ago in a Viking Age mass burial in Repton in Derbyshire. But it was kind of forgotten about. It was it was picked out during the excavations and put away in a box. And then in 2017, I came across it as I was studying this Viking site. And it just really uh, appealed to me because it was very unusual. I hadn't seen it before. I started looking up the material and realised that it had most likely come from Gujarat in India. And it had arrived in Repton in Derbyshire, which is about as far inland in England as you can get, really, uh, during the Viking Age. And that was just something that I got completely obsessed with the thought of and I wanted to to look into how that could happen how could you get a bead like that all the way from India to Repton in the ninth century and why so that's essentially where River King started and it's it's me retracing that journey backwards and essentially trying to reassess what what we know about the Vikings uh, along the way 
the British Isles have obviously got a long and storied history about being invaded and occupied and settled by various different people. And in many towns, you can't go 100 yards without tripping over some sort of Roman remains, for instance. But it turns out that there's hardly any physical evidence of the Vikings having been here. Why is that? Yeah, that's the that's a really good question. And uh, we're not entirely sure, to be honest. I think the key is that the Vikings didn't really leave a very specific material remains in the same way that the Romans did, for example. So they didn't have a very specific type of architecture. They didn't necessarily have have so much of that. There, there are certain things that, that we can see. So we can find evidence there's some sort of bits of stone sculpture in places, for example. But other than that, you don't really get whole Viking or Scandinavian towns or settlements. You don't get any vast big buildings. So what seems to have happened is that we actually have tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands, which we really don't quite know, but a really substantial population of Scandinavians settling here. But then they they kind of become absorbed, uh, essentially, by integrating into the landscape. And so quite soon, probably over a few generations, we have this intermingling of people. So Scandinavians, you know, people in England or in Scotland or Ireland or wherever. And that's really the key that they, they essentially adapt and just become part of part of the landscape so they don't leave anything that specific behind and that's why it's so difficult to really uncover and find out how many of them they were well even themselves as well it seems like this dig we'll talk about this dig at repton in derbyshire in a moment but even just graves and things it seems like there's not that many or not no. that many found, obviously. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's not that many that we know about that we can confidently, you know, determine are, are Vikings or Scandinavians. Because quite traditionally, a lot of uh, graves in Scandinavia will be buried. Uh, people will be buried with things like weapons, maybe a sword or or certain other grave goods or jewellery, for example. But especially when people converted to Christianity, that stopped. So before that point, people might be buried with, with quite distinctive items. But after conversion to Christianity you wouldn't be buried with anything. You would literally just uh, be in your grave as, as a skeleton. And so to identify those graves, to find out who those dead were, who, who had migrated, used to be a, a very difficult thing to do. So what's special about Repton in Derbyshire then? So Repton really is one of very few locations in England where we have not only written sources to tell us that the Vikings, a raiding Viking army, came there and stayed there, but we also have really substantial archaeological evidence. So we have lots of artefacts and we have a lot of graves, graves that are really distinctive, that really definite Scandinavian material culture. So, for example, that the most famous one is a grave uh, of the so-called Repton warrior who was buried with a sword of a Scandinavian type and also a Thor's hammer around his neck, which kind of sort of shouts Viking at you, really. And um, we also have uh, written records from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which tell us that the Viking great army that uh, came to this country or to England in um, the 860s overwintered in Repton in uh, 873. So we've got written sources and archaeological evidence. So in that Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, there's there's, um, a description of of their winter camp and excavations starting in the 80s uncovered evidence for this. And we've we've done more research. I've, I've led my own excavations there as well, all pointing to the same thing. Now I've done some new scientific work, again, backing up that those people buried there, including in a very unusual mass burial under a a mound, which contained the bodies of nearly 300 people, that was all associated with this Viking great army. 
So this place was first seriously excavated back in the 70s. And you've obviously worked on there yourself. And so in over the years, and obviously since we've, you know, developed things like DNA research and what have you, how has our knowledge of this site changed from what we assumed when it was when it was first seriously excavated? There's quite a few things have changed. And one of the things was this uh, certainty of whether those people buried there in this mass grave, especially, really were associated with the great army, these Vikings, because originally some radiocarbon dates were made of the bones themselves. Um, and I should say also there were some artifacts in the same grave. So there, there were actually coins dating to 872 to 875, which is exactly the date that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle said the Vikings were there. And this mass grave contained largely mainly men, not only men, but mainly men who were really big and really seemed to be really, really strong and really tall everything that you were kind of expecting um, of a Viking army. But the radiocarbon dates essentially were all wrong. So they, they were too early. So they some of them were dating to the 8th century uh, or even 7th century. So before the Vikings even uh, first set foot in England. So that seemed to think that this grave, the mass grave, couldn't be uh, the remains of the great army like they first thought. So that was one of the things. And the other thing was that it was thought that the Great Army only camped in Repton and it was quite a small camp. But since then, we found another site nearby, actually initially discovered by metal detectorists, which we now know is a second and, and slightly larger camp. So that the presence, the Viking presence in Repton in that year and possibly afterwards was really quite substantial. But with the radiocarbon days, that was part of the, the work that I also talk about in the book, uh, was something that I, I was able to reassess using some new scientific methods, because what they didn't know back in the 80s, but what we do know now is that when we radiocarbon date human remains, we actually have to take into account the sort of diets that people had. Because if you ate a lot of fish, then that would actually give you full states that seem too old, that seem like, like they're much earlier than they really were, because carbon gets into oceans it circulates around for a very long time so knowing that i was able to correct those dates and actually it turned out that all those early dates were just from people who'd eaten a lot of fish which possibly isn't that surprising from a sort of army that partially lives at sea uh, for some of the time so again we were able to, to show that that was actually completely consistent with the great army this huge big burial uh, of nearly 300 people could well have been the great army so those are some of the, the changes that have come about can we also talk here about doing the isotope analysis on people's teeth as well and what that tells us yeah, so this is one of the methods that I use a lot in my work and um, something which I personally think is really exciting in a new development. So this is a way of looking at where somebody grew up. So to get some evidence of their geographical origin. So you asked me earlier about these graves and, and you know, when we just have a skeleton, when you have no grave goods, nothing else, you have no way of knowing where what sort of culture that person might belong to. But actually, we are like walking diaries of, of our lives and, and where we've lived and what we've eaten. It's all a part of our bodies. So I grew up in Norway, for example. And when I was a child, I ate foods that were grown locally. I drank local water and milk and so on. And all of those foods and drinks had chemicals that came from the ground from the soils or you know from the, the water in my local environment those signatures from those those sort of soils and things actually uh, become a part of your bones and a part of your teeth and that's great for us as archaeologists because your teeth once they're formed in childhood 
they don't change. So the enamel that's in my teeth actually carries with it those chemical signatures from my childhood. So I've essentially got the chemical signatures in my teeth of, uh, of Norway. Whereas my children who've grown up in Southwest England, they've got teeth with, with essentially the local uh, chemical signature here in England. So we can actually look at a skeleton that's even if it's a thousand years old, take a sample, look at those chemical signatures in the teeth and then get an idea of if they're local, if they've grown up somewhere really cold, if they've grown up somewhere with really old geology. And that way you can start to look at migration and you can start to identify whether some of those people may in fact be incoming Scandinavians. Yeah, because I mentioned earlier that, you know, the, the fascinating new technique of DNA, but there's a, a significant problem with with using DNA here, you know, not least because the people that came before the Vikings, you know, the, the Angles and the Saxons are all fundamentally the same people, aren't they? Yes, they really are. So they come from very much the same places. So the southern Scandinavians are essentially the same peoples. So, and we're only talking about uh, maybe a hundred, a few hundred years overlap there, which isn't enough for there to be changes, genetic changes. I mean, if we were talking about 2000 years or something like that, maybe we could see genetic changes. But because we're only talking a few hundred years, DNA at the moment, I mean, hopefully this will change in, in you know, 10 years time or something. But at the moment, you can't really tell apart somebody who migrated from northern Germany or southern Denmark into England in, say, year 600 uh, to somebody who came in 873 from southern Denmark or something like that because their genetic signatures will be exactly the same and that's a big problem for England and that's why we haven't quite been able to work out even having taken lots of DNA samples done lots of DNA work on modern populations and and, and so on we just haven't really been able to untangle those earlier migrations from those in the Viking age and that is a really big problem. So this great army the so-called great army um, let's talk about why they were in Repton, and I guess why they were in the country in the first place. Yeah, so the Great Army we first hear about in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in the year 865. Now, there's been lots of, I should say, there's been lots of Vikings uh, and Viking attacks and Viking raids before that. Uh, The first ones we know about are in the late 8th century. And then they sort of continue, but they they seem, at least according to the historical records, to be kind of hit and run raids, really. So very sort of, it's come over, grab what you want and go back again. But then something changes from uh, the middle of the 9th century and they start to overwinter. And then in 865, the Chronicle says that a great army or great heathen army arrived And over the next uh, decade or so, we hear about all the movements of this great army around England. And it's clear that this really is a a kind of step up for the Vikings. It's it's no longer just hit and run raids. They're not just looking at uh, grabbing some valuables from a monastery or anything like that. This is actually about political conquest and eventually also settlement. So we've got people arriving because they want to stay. They want to take over the kingdoms that make up the country. So that's what happens. uh, And we we hear how with different success, they start in East Anglia and then they move north to York. And eventually in the year 873, that's when they head for Repton. And the reason why they do that is because 
That is the Kingdom of Mercia, which at the time they didn't have control over, but they very much wanted. And uh, Repton was essentially the, the sort of jewel in the crown, really, of Mercia. So this was, uh, there was a very wealthy monastery there, and it was a, a royal estate. So essentially, by, by going in there and, and taking Repton, they were making a very, very significant political statement. And by doing so, they actually managed to, to essentially chase the, the Mercian king. Uh, he went into exile into Paris and never came back. And they took over the kingdom and uh, essentially conquered all that land, according to the Chronicle. As I mentioned at the beginning, the book is called River Kings. Derbyshire couldn't be further from the sea if it tried. Um, So let's talk about something else that's significant about the site of Repton. Yes. So Repton is located essentially by what was a bit like a motorway at the time, which was the River Trent. And the Trent flows right up to uh, to Repton, or at least a, a sort of outlying part of it now. But uh, if you follow, if you trace it from Repton and, and up north, you will come all the way up to the Humber. And from the Humber, you can go straight into the North Sea. Now, the Trent at the moment near Repton is, is quite a quiet, so it's not really that wide. But we know that in the 9th century, there was a lot more water in the river. And in fact, you could get it, you could sail down to Repton really rather easily. So... This was a, a really vital part of, of the travel and part of the success of the Vikings was the fact that they combined essentially boats and ships with land-based movement. So the fact that they could get there by the river as well as over land was a really one of the key reasons, I think, why they were there. And that was really what led me to, to the title of my book, River Kings, really, because it made me realise that not just in Repton, but tracing this whole journey and in fact that the, you know, the entire beads uh, travel uh, from India. It's all down to the rivers and a big part of the success of, of the Vikings at the time was the fact that they could control movements on those rivers. You talk about another site, a sort of wintering camp at a place called Torxey, which is at the, the confluence of the, um, of the Trent and the Humber. Let's talk about what this place might have been like. Yeah, so that was the winter camp from the year before. So before the Great Army arrived in Repton, they spent a winter at Torxey. And um, at the moment, if you go there, you can't really see very much. In fact, there's absolutely no sign. Again, as, as I said at the beginning, there's, there's no evidence. There's no physical, there's no buildings, there's, there's no remains. And it looks just like a little hill with some sheep on it and some power stations. And, and absolutely nowhere that you would imagine was anything of significance. But again, the Trent is there. The Trent uh, is quite fast flowing. It's, it's very close to the Humber and at the time it would actually have been so much more water there that the uh, site itself would have been a bit like an island so it would have been quite safe and if you come in with lots of boats that's a brilliant place to spend the winter what they do in these winter camps is they, they partially they wait for better weather which sounds a bit pathetic but actually there's a good reason because if you've got a force of several thousand people and you've got to move them partially over land then muddy and wet weather is not, it's not that great but they also need to stock up they need to repair their weapons they need to repair their ships they need to make sure that they know what they're what they're doing so that's what I would have taken place at Torxy and the reason why we know that why we've been able to find out is actually all through metal detected finds so it's really tiny little artifacts that we know are associated with the Vikings we didn't know that a while back we didn't know that these were the, the sort of signatures of the great army but but now that we do we've been able to use those objects to essentially track them all the way around the country Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Kat Jarman and we're talking about her book, River Kings, A New History of the Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Roads. And looking out towards the Silk Roads now, Kat, towards the east, I want to I sort of introduce the idea of trade and movement. We'll eventually come back to this bead and how it might have ended up in a cold Derbyshire grave. But first of all, I want to talk about the significance of silver to Vikings. Yes, so silver, in fact, has been claimed and managed to be more or less the driving force of the entire Viking Age. And uh, I think there's a lot to be said for that, because we know that silver became hugely popular uh, in the Viking Age. Before that, before the Viking Age, there wasn't really quite as much of it around in Scandinavia. It was mainly gold was far more popular. But then suddenly, for some reason, and I think it's part of part supply and part demand, we start to see this huge interest in this metal. And part of the reason for that is because silver is coming in in really very large quantities from the east, so from silver mines in the east. And that's, again, something that we've, we're finding out more and more, even uh, in this country, in England, by looking at some of those metal detected finds. And one of the key types of artefacts that we see are silver dirham coins. So these are Islamic coins that have been imported from the Middle East through these Viking trade routes that we'll talk a bit more, I'm sure, about in a moment. And they are really high quality silver. And the, the Vikings love these because uh, 
they were then being used, not, not as payment, but actually to be melted down uh, into other things. So they would be melted down, they would be used as payments, and then eventually turn into you know, jewellery or, or whatever, armorings. And we are seeing them uh, as the Viking Age goes on in really quite vast quantities, which is, is really quite spectacular. And indeed, at least to begin with, they're not using currency, they're not using coins, but the, the Viking economy is weight-based. What do we mean by that? Yeah, so so they're not really striking out and really making their own coins into much like towards the end of the Viking Age in Scandinavia. Some, a little bit more coin use uh, in England. But really, it's that uh, we call a bullion economy. So that is using silver by weight. So you would take a piece of silver and you weigh it out, certain set amount, and that's what you use for your payments. And we know that because we can find uh, scales, so weighing scales uh, at a lot of these sites, as well as trading weights. And these are also really, really remarkable. Remarkable. They're just quite small things, but they are set to very specific weight standards. And we find them, they're standardized across the Viking world. And what's even more interesting is that they are actually, they are based on weight standards that come from the Islamic world. So they're, they're linked to the actual weights of these Islamic coins, these dirhams. And that essentially becomes one of the main payment methods uh, that's used both at home in Scandinavia and at trading sites in England. And that's got a lot of benefits because, for example, for one thing, there's nobody really controlling that currency. There's no king or no ruler issuing uh, the coins. And you can use it wherever you go so that it'll be recognized silver. You can check if it's pure. You can check how much it weighs. So if you're trading in the West, it's brilliant. Trading at home, trading in the East, all across these different landscapes and cultures. It's like a sort of common currency that can be used everywhere you travel, which is very convenient. I can remember seeing in a museum the arm rings that elaborately carved jewellery is what it looks like that they would wear on their arms. And in this book, there's a picture of a huge pile of them. And I was fascinated to discover that this was specifically a form of currency as well. Yeah, so they're not just used for, for sort of ornaments or, or decoration or, you know, jewellery or whatever, but they are actually wearable currency. So you can get paid in an arm ring if you're, you're taking part in a raid or whatever, you know, you may well be paid in that time ring and then quite conveniently if you if you need to cut a bit off to, to pay for something that's what you can do as well so they are on the one hand they're jewelry but actually they are directly used as currency and we call this hack silver when we get these little bits and little fragments of other types of jewelry so also if you're wearing a lot of them it's, it's also a way of showing your wealth in a very sort of literal way not just like we would by wearing you know an expensive watch or something like that but you're actually literally wearing that silver wearing that wealth on your arm Let's talk a bit more then again about who the Vikings actually were in terms of the sort of migration patterns. And, you know, we talked about how Anglo-Saxons, uh, Angles, the Saxons, the, the Vikings were all roughly from the same sort of geographic area. So DNA-wise, there's a lot of crossover. But when you look at Scandinavian people from that time it also seems like there is dna coming from other places from britain from ireland from elsewhere yeah that's right so that's some, some of that is quite a new discovery really because it used to be thought that they were quite sort of isolated uh, i guess uh, some people sort of had the sense that scandinavians were very much staying especially those further north perhaps inland in, in norway 
were very much just a sort of uh, more static population, I guess. But obviously with the Viking era, there's an awful lot of movement going outwards. So we know that there are some some very common cultural traits. Um, the term Viking is is a bit controversial and, and in many ways is not actually that helpful because it wasn't really a term that they used about themselves, uh, that the word was used, but they wouldn't say, well, I'm a Viking, you know, I'm from this part of Norway, Sweden and Denmark didn't exist in the same form that they do now until right towards the end of the, the Viking Age. But there's there's something uh, about that Scandinavian culture, about language, uh, art forms, burial forms, that is definitely joint. And that's essentially what we are referring to as Viking. But then as people start moving outwards as well and migrating, they do take a lot of that with them. But as we were saying earlier, they quite quickly become essentially absorbed in other cultures as well, which is, again, why it's really so difficult. But one of the things that a lot of DNA researchers have been very interested in is, is trying to look at that diversity within those Scandinavian or Viking populations, if you like. So just to see if they really were that sort of static. And one of the big surprises that has come in those studies is that there's quite a lot of evidence of people from the outside coming back into Scandinavia. So we don't just have Scandinavians going outwards, but actually you have movement the other ways as well. Which really, I mean, to, to most of us archaeologists might not come as such a big surprise because we know that there's a lot of change, exchange of ideas, people going back and forth. But actually to have this evidence, the genetic evidence that people are coming from the outside and to settle in Scandinavia is is really quite exciting. So do we think that these were people that would have been coming to settle in Scandinavia because that might be a nice place to settle to try their luck? Or are we talking about people that are taken there against their will? I think we get a little bit of both. We do definitely get a lot of people who come because they're involved in trade. Some of them might be involved in craft production as well. So especially around the Baltic Sea area, we see a lot of pottery from the, the Slavic areas. Uh, so southern and so eastern parts of the Baltic coming into Scandinavia, making pottery with certain types of skills that are, are very much in demand. So some for those reasons, some will be alliances as well. So you will have families, these new families, uh, perhaps someone who's um, who's travelled over to, to England and somebody will get married and then they'll bring uh, part of that family back to the, the Scandinavian homeland. So so those are all quite, quite sort of nice, peaceful uh, parts. But we do also know that the Vikings were very heavily involved in the slave trade. So it's quite likely that some of those people who came back were actually enslaved people. So there are people taking against their will and um, being brought back. Again, that's another uh, sort of invisible. In fact, we don't really, it's very difficult to prove that somebody was enslaved in the past because there's no physical evidence on, on their bodies. There's no, you know, there's no written sources to really tell you who those people were. But that's definitely another possible interpretation of some of those genetics results. You said the term Vikings itself is is a little bit contested, and indeed they would never have called themselves that. It's also, as you say in the book, a word that's root is gendered. It, Viking fundamentally means a man. And we've often had in the past uh, an image of Viking women staying at home, looking after the homestead while the men sailed off to rape and plunder places. But a, a couple of finds that have been made relatively recently have started to change that idea so first of all I want to talk about the warrior woman of Burka. Yes 
This is, was something that became uh, a bit of a, a sensation uh, all over the world just a few years ago. It was the case of a Viking grave from Sweden, from this site called Birka, which was one of the, the largest towns. It was a, it's a home of, of this warrior elite as well. They had this, uh, this amazing uh, graves. And one of the riches of those graves, a chamber grave, contained a, a body, a single body, with a full set of weapons, so all sort of not, um, arrows and bow and uh, a sword and an axe and so on, plus two horses at the individual's feet. So it was a very rich grave, always uh, interpreted to be a very significant warrior. It was placed in, in a really prominent position as well in the town. And then they're quite unexpectedly almost, when everyone thought that this was a sort of archetypal warrior, a new study, a DNA analysis of this body revealed that rather than being male, this was actually uh, genetically a female skeleton. So that, of course, became a, a huge internet sensation. Here we have this female warrior from the past. And that, in many ways, was something that some people uh, were extremely happy to see. And, and others were not, and others were questioning that interpretation. But for, uh, for actually, I think, over 100 years, this body this grave was interpreted to be a really important significant warrior and all of a sudden we had to deal with what if it wasn't a man after all which is quite interesting and when we talked about them traversing rivers in the first half I deliberately didn't get too much into actual Viking ships because I, I wanted to talk about a particular one which is the Osberg ship um, which was a, a grave find. Tell me something about that. Yeah, so the Oseberg ship really, uh, well, in my personal opinion, at least, is uh, the most beautiful uh, and spectacular Viking ship that we've ever excavated. It's one of the most complete ones. And it's currently uh, in the Viking Ship Museum in, in Oslo. And when it was excavated, it was so well preserved because it was buried in clay, which is great for preserving wood, complete with carvings all the way along the side of it. But it was also in the ground because it was a grave so it was, a, it was somebody's burial and, and that's again one of the, the traditions that were quite common in the Viking Age and it came with all sorts of grave goods as well a very large number of animals including horses and all sorts of equipment that the dead would have needed to take with them to the afterlife and inside this burial uh, were actually two individuals and it turned out that both of them were women so we have two women one older and one younger woman buried side by side in the chamber in the Oseberg ship which is quite staggering that the finest and best example and the richest grave from the Viking entire Viking world belong to not a man but two women. And finally on the Vikings, let's go back to that bead. And by the end of the book, you've you've traced its its route all the way back to to India. How do we think it would have ended up in a in a cold Derbyshire grave? So I think that's part of those trading networks that we see uh, really beginning in the Viking Age. So there's so much travel going across uh, all the way up uh, England, especially along those rivers, as, uh, as I mentioned, and across to Scandinavia. And the other thing we see happening right at the start of the Viking Age is the appearance of trading towns. So when the Viking Age begins, we don't really have towns, uh, certainly no cities, but really it's more, more sort of smaller farmsteads and, and villages and so on. But at the beginning of the Viking Age, we get these trading nodes. They're all very closely connected. 
they're situated along the, the Baltic Sea, the fringes of the Baltic Sea, and also along the North Sea. So there are some on the English Channel as well. And that's really where a lot of these goods are coming back and forth. And they're really what's connecting places like uh, Britain to Scandinavia and then across the Baltic as well. And we start seeing them essentially popping up all over the place across the Baltic and then crucially for the perspective of my book down the rivers of Eastern Europe so you get these rivers that go essentially all the way from the Baltic and down to the Black Sea and um, further east as well and all the way along that way we get these trading towns and these settlements and that's exactly where those goods can move so we have that silver that I mentioned earlier the silver that's coming from the Middle East that's moving north and then other things are moving south and that can be things like furs other goods that are, are very popular from Scandinavia from sort of inland uh, Eastern Europe as well we know that slaves are being traded down the rivers and the silver and things like the beads are coming back in return and just one more thing. We've been talking about Vikings. This is a book about Vikings. You're an expert on Vikings from Scandinavia. And um, when I was reading the the intro at the beginning, one thing stuck out like a sore thumb, which is Rapa Nui. Then, of course, it occurred to me that Vikings and the people of Rapa Nui are both societies that success was entirely connected to their, their mastery of, of traversing the oceans. Did you find that there's other obvious similarities? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think definitely. So we're talking about the same sort of time period as well, to a degree, sort of around about the turn of the, the millennium. But I think we have people who are living in quite quite sort of extreme environments, because if you look at the geography of uh, especially Scandinavia, if you look at Iceland and, and Greenland, so other parts of the world where the Vikings settled, the Scandinavians settled, these are really quite difficult places to get to. And you have to be really adaptive. You have to just use what you can use. So if you're going to survive in Greenland, for example, you need to be able to use the resources that are there. And I think that's exactly the same on Rapa Nui as well, because you're on a little island that's many thousands of miles from the nearest other landmass. You can't just go and, and get other goods and other resources. You have to really adapt and you have to be really really good at that so you need to be able to work out how to get food uh, you need to work out how to use the soils and the resources and on Rapa Nui we know that that was really really difficult that's to many degrees going to be the same in a place like Greenland or possibly even Iceland as well so I think that adaptability is really crucial to both of them but also part of the culture so if you look at Rapa Nui the most famous thing is obviously the big moai the, the big statues and they've got to do with various ways of organizing society so so they've got to do with with beliefs and religion and essentially societal organization and I think that's also the case a lot uh, in the Viking world so again they, they've got ways of, of expressing uh, their religions their beliefs and adapting so you've got some definite parallels there but obviously in completely different environments. So I've been talking to Kat Jarman we've been talking about her book River Kings a new history of the Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Roads which is out in the UK from William Collins. Kat thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. No, my pleasure thank you for inviting me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.